Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. You know, when I look back on my life, I'm going to think back on people that were unique and different and uh, 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 very much a part of my life, but unique and different. And our guest today is one of those who falls in that category. As a matter of fact, he may be at the top of uniqueness, and that is one Rufus Edmondson, who is uh, a longtime friend of mine. We go back all the way to our days at Carolina, and and he – I mean, uh, Rufus has had one of the most interesting lives I can imagine. You've been all over the board, and before I start letting Rufus talk, he's written a book called That's Rufus, a memoir of, of Tar Heel politics, Watergate, and public life, and I can't wait to read it. Well, Don, the thing yeah. about you and me in Carolina, I did a little bit better than you did. You made a string of about 30-some C's, but... What did you say? Oh, no, I had some D's and B's mixed in with it. Oh, you did? That that was Hugh McCall that made the straight C's. Yeah, he said that everything over a C was wasted. Yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) a lot of you guys, uh, when I was in school, you had aspirations of going to law school, which you did, or med school or dental school or some other post school. I didn't, and so I felt like, well, you know. And, of course, back in those days, a C was a little bit more – Fashionable than a C is today. I college. think Brother Don's done pretty well, don't you, Jason? I, I well, think in the annals of North Carolina business world and philanthropy, and just plain old goodness that that uh, Don Curtis will go down in history as one of the best. Well, you're kind to say that, but uh, let's get back to you. Uh, when you were born and raised in Boone, North Carolina, in the mountains of North Carolina, uh, when did you sort of think that you might? as uh, Bill Friday would say, amount to something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I grew up in a farm family. My daddy was a wildlife protector. We farmed on the side. Five boys and one girl. Sort of hard scrabble life, but we we didn't. By today's standards, they would have said we were poor, but we weren't poor because you're rich when you have such a wonderful mom and daddy and you have church friends and you've got your uh, association with all your kin folks. And back in those days... Life centered in a rural community like Boone, your, your life centered around your church and your school and what you did at home. And I sort of, I guess, along about high school, I thought I might amount to something because I started getting elected to class presidents uh, all three years and then student body president the fourth year. But that really doesn't mean anything. That's sort of a popularity contest. Then uh, when I Went to Carolina, I thought, well, that was a tough time. I, I was more into uh, being in the Rat Sculler. That's a little beer joint, to tell you the truth, that was underground. That was a wonderful place, except when you drank too much beer. And I mentioned that in the book, Don, about my first night at Carolina and what I did. I, I really sort of hate to bring that back up, but it was <laughs> not a good night on getting back to Avery Dorm after being in the Rat Sculler. But then I... I first started thinking I might amount to something when I met this wonderful man named Senator Sam Irvin, and I knew that I wanted to do something similar to what he was doing, and that was along about my senior year in high school and my years in college, and realized that you can make a great impart on something if you if you pick yourself a good mentor and try to pick your own friends and not let people pick you as their friends. It takes a lifetime of learning, Don, sometimes to learn some basic uh, elements in life, and I 
uh, throughout the book, I've tried to say that pick your friends. Don't let them pick you because sometimes you have people that pick themselves and they're pretty bad friends. Uh, practice empathy in life. Try to put yourself in somebody's shoes. And like my mother used to say, listen, because if you're not listening, you're not hearing anything. If you're talking, you don't hear anything. And put yourself in other people's shoes and realize that you are very blessed. And she said, whatever you do, don't forget to thank those who help you get where you are. And once you thank them, thank them again. And then she said, and do not develop. She didn't call it hubris. Now, this hubris thing will get you every time. You start thinking that you're better than other people, that you can get by with this and that. I went through one of those spells, and I paid for it dearly. But I learned something from it. And, and then the last thing that I've tried to point out in the book is you got to have some sort of spirituality to exist in this world. If you don't, you're not going to be anchored to anything. And I, that's a long way of saying how I came about maybe thinking I might amount to something, Don. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, but your career has been so varied. Let's talk a little bit uh, about your 10 years with uh, Senator Sam Irwin and talk about him because, again, that, that privilege of being with one of the most, uh, another of the most unfor- uh, unforgettable characters I've known, and I didn't know him nearly like you did, but Senator Sam was a unique person, a brilliant mind, uh, and uh, I'm sure – that uh, your 10 years with him was, was something special. Oh, it was so special. And, you know, I grew up there. He grew up in sort of the foothills like Belmont of uh, North Carolina and was and loved Gaston County, by the way. He had many, many friends there. I remember his lawyer friends. He said that he, had, he adored going to court in Gaston County because it had so many characters in it. Yeah. But being around Senator Urban was like being the master teacher he had so much knowledge that he <clears> – <throat> uh, I, I used to say, for instance, that I could go to school for – law school for a month and sit at his feet on a, on a car trip for half an hour and learn as much as I did in the, in the six months in law school. That's just how much he knew and how much he imparted. But he never tried to impose his will on somebody else. He would give you the alternatives. And just, just traveling with a man like that, I remember one time – in the, uh, and I mentioned this in the book, uh, we were traveling in 1968 on a campaign trip, and uh, we had come to the end of the day after a long day of visiting courthouses, and we were in Chatham, Chatham County, and there was this old hotel there. For some reason, the the secretary had not made provisions for us to have a a night to stay or a place to stay that night. And there was an old hotel on what is now a, a business office on the, the square, I bet you've seen it, of Pittsburgh. And he said, well, let's check and see if you got a room there. Well, I checked in for us, and the man said, we got one room left. It's got one bed in it. <laughs> now, I had been accustomed to staying with Senator Irvin in, in a room with two beds in it for a long time over the 10-year period. Well, I thought my my Lord, I, I, what am I going to do? Well, anyway, I took the thing, and, and it just happens that the senator had one of the, the biggest snoring problems in the world to begin with. He had adenoids that sounded like a freight train coming out of Morganton toward Gastonia. And I thought, okay, how are we going to handle this? Because here, I, it's nothing unusual for 
for country boys to sleep in the same bed. Uh, bunked up. We used to when I grew up. We slept three to a bed when I was there. But now sleeping, I I thought to myself, this is going to be like sleeping with God. <laughs> and I thought, oh Lord, what will I do? Will I position myself in the bed after we'd had very frankly uh, the senator like to have a little relaxation with a bourbon and, and ginger ale as he called it. And uh, I thought, now I don't want to touch Senator Irvin. How, how I, I, I just can't bear to touch God. <laughs> And so I positioned myself on that bed with one hip on and one hip off and one foot one foot on the bed and one foot in the bed and tried my best to angle that son. But every time he would get into a rolling spell, he'd roll over and hit me and think, oh, God, oh, God, please, please deliver me from this this this, this affliction that I have here. I, I, I just can't take it anymore. So I, I finally got up. Went into the little bathroom, took some she- uh, took some uh, an old blanket out of the little bitty tiny closet, put it in the bathtub because there wasn't enough room on the bathroom floor to lie down, put it in the bathroom, and slept in that bathtub for four or five hours. <laughs> and I I re- label that as my night of sleeping with God. It didn't quite work. <laughs> and little close things like that, you get to know a man, and you get to know how how he feels about things. Uh, I remember he had very arthritic hands, and sometimes he couldn't button his collar, and I would button his shirt for him. And when you when you do intimate things like that, you 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 get to know a person. And they used to say that oh, Senator Irvin was a uh, since he did, did not agree on all civil rights bills that he was a bigot. Well, you know, I think I would know if he were a bigot. I never heard him say the N word one entire time. When we were we were on trips, and that's when it w- would happen if it did. And I, I and his kindness and decency. Now he had he lived in a different world, Don. It was a a world of the latter part of the nineteenth uh, century, where he he might have had what what is that word we call it? Uh, so you, you you like he I, I'm re- I'm rec- reminded of the the movie The Help. Yeah. And he had the, he was one of the good people in the help. When when the uh, the the lady maid died, Senator Irvin's will had made provision for her and her husband. Uh, some people think that's a kind of condensation or condensation, but it's not. Uh, I got to know the man, and and it was if there was ever anybody that I can look up to as the most respected man in political life or other kind of life other than my daddy. It would be Sam J. Irvin Jr. Well, now he also, of course, uh, was known, and we've got about a minute uh, and a half left in this segment. Uh, but he was quite an authority on the Constitution, probably uh, in the Senate at that time, probably the authority on the. Oh, Constitution. everybody knew they they would refer everything to Senator Sam Irvin, and that's why Senator Mansfield appointed him as the chair of the Watergate Committee because he said he knew so much about the Constitution, and he could quote that in the Shakespeare and the Bible all in one sentence. And did often. And did often. <laughs> well, we're, we're going to talk about the Watergate experience because that's another uh, interesting part of your life. Uh, and we've talked about it before, but it, it's just one of the most fascinating things. And uh, as history continues to write uh, itself uh, about that era, uh, th- those moments are uh, chapters 1 through 10, at least, of that, that era. Uh, Our guest is Rufus Edmondson. He has recently written a book, that's Rufus, 
And we're talking about that on this edition of Carolina Newsmakers, and we'll be back right after these messages. Well, Jason, I've got to tell you, you're pretty much everything this company is looking for in an entry-level candidate. Great. Your resume isn't quite what we're used to, but you've got a fantastic work ethic. Thank you. And I'm impressed by how you carry yourself. So, should we talk about the job? What? The job? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I have no way of recruiting or even meeting you. This interview didn't happen. It may sound ridiculous, and that's because it kind of is. There's a huge pool of talent your company is missing out on. Meet the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Man, we really could have used him. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. You've got your shades on, do you? So cool, so hip, so sheltered by frames of UV protection to show the world you are a force. But did you also know by wearing sunglasses you're doing your eyes a favor? That's right. Sunglasses help avoid overexposure to the sun, which can produce red eyes, a feeling of grittiness, even excessive tearing. But you, oh master of the incognito, are taking care of your eyes without even knowing it. For more easy ways to keep keeping your eyes healthy, see your optometrist or visit AOA.org. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with Rufus Edmondson, uh, who is uh, in law practice at the present time. But uh, as we said when we opened the program, has had a very interesting career. He served as North Carolina's Attorney General, elected in 1974. And you were what, Attorney General two terms or three? I was Attorney General two and a half terms because the first first term was a two-year term to fill out Robert Morgan's unexpired term because he went on to the Senate. And then, of course, you're Secretary of State, and, of course, you've run for governor. And as I've said uh, in the introduction of the program, uh, that uh, coupled with your time on the Watergate uh, uh, Commission and all that sort of thing just is a fascinating uh, career and background, and I'm sure it's all well chroni- uh, chronicled in this book, That's Rufus, a memoir of Tar Heel politics, Watergate, and public life. So uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, your time as Attorney General uh, what interested you in being Attorney General of North Carolina? Uh, because you were situated uh, in Washington with Senator Sam Irwin, and uh, you'd been with him 10 years, and you come back to North Carolina and run for Attorney General. What- well, that job had always intrigued me because, Don, it sort of monitored the things I'd been doing with Senator Irwin, studying the Constitution, helping hold hearings, investigating, and it just seemed to be a, a, a perfect fit for me. And I know that was a big leap there to all of a sudden say, well, I'm going to start at the top and I'm going to run for attorney general. But there was an opening. Uh, that, that's another good reason I ran. There was an opening. And uh, I had to get the nomination for the, the first time th- through the state Democratic Executive Committee, which was composed of over 400 people. And that was like campaigning statewide. And in the meantime, Senator uh, Governor Holsizer had appointed a also person, from Boone, by the way. Also from Boone, had appointed a a, a guy from uh, Charlotte named Jim Carson to the Attorney General. So I had an opponent in that that November in 1974. So I won that two year term, and then subsequent terms on out there. But I often said that I enjoyed being Attorney General more than any anything I've ever done, including even Watergate, because you could get things done. 
the Attorney General's office afforded you the, the right, the, 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 the euphoric feeling of knowing that you helped somebody get their money back from some, some shyster. Uh, people come up to me today and even say, I remember when you helped me get my money back from that, that shoddy car deal I made in, in 1982 or, or something like that. And I, it makes me feel proud. And, and also during that time too, Don, in the early years of the Attorney General's office was, was the fact that, that we made to save the new river, help save the new river. And I got to work alongside Senator Irvin in our both respective offices. He was still in the Senate and I was Attorney General. And you imagine me there at, at a at a house in uh, house congressional committee testifying alongside Senator Irvin. Now that was the thrill of a lifetime. Not that I was equal. Now I don't, I don't want anybody to believe that I ever thought I was equal to Senator Irvin. But helping save the New River, which I I still see when I go back to visit the home place that ran on through our farm and and we f- swam in that. I didn't swim much because I never learned to swim. Well, I couldn't become an Eagle Scout. One of the, one of the regrets I had, John, I, Don, I, and I bet you've been an Eagle Scout. No. I, I one of the regrets class. I had was that I never could make Eagle Scout because I couldn't do life-saving. Well, I, I couldn't get my second class for the same reason. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you a question. Oh, he's admitted it. Yeah. Well, one of us. I, I have my I have few uh, a few problems in my background. I'm, I'm not nearly as perfect as I like to think I am. <laughs> And I'm not nearly, you know, I am, I am, of course, a person of great modesty. But, but other than that, <laughs> why um, is Jason laughing at both? Well, of them? I don't know. Uh, but going back to Boone, though, uh, has there ever been a small town the size of Boone that has had two such distinguished uh, statesmen, uh, Jim Holzhauser and you, to come out of a small town? And did you know each other growing up? Yes, we did. Uh, he he went to school with with my brother and my two uh, my brother and my sister. In fact, he knew all all the whole family. His father was a very respected attorney, and I knew him well too. And just a spli- a fine, splendid individual. And we never had any fusses when I was attorney general. And he was governor. We had no fusses. I I one time made a quip when I was running for attorney general. I said, "Well, this is your chance to give Boone another chance." But I was only kidding. Yeah. And he. He said, I hope you were kidding. I said, well, of course I was, Governor. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so at one time, Boone, North Carolina, a population then about seven or 8,000, not counting students, I guess, had uh, both the Attorney General and the Governor from the same city. Right. That's, a, that's unusual, truly unusual, because we, we often think Charlotte tries to rule the state, but it was actually Boone running the state. Boone was, Boone was helping run the state at that time, yes. Okay, so uh, uh, getting back to uh, serving as attorney general, then, of course, you decided to run for governor uh, when in 19, what was that? Uh, 1984. 84, yeah. Uh, and what, what was behind that decision? Boy. Well, and, and, and what would you do differently if you ran for governor again? Well, <clears throat> what, the, the, what was behind that decision was that it was time because Jim Hunt had got the right to succeed himself for the first time and then serve two terms. That, that had never been in North Carolina before. And so we all piled up, and I knew that, that I, it, was, it was time to run. Now, secondly, what would I do before? I wouldn't have run. Yeah. If I could go back and do it, I would have waited another term or, or whenever I needed to wait because it was the worst year 
that anybody on the Democratic ticket could run for uh, governor of North Carolina. First of all, we had a bitter primary. Oh, that thing was so bitter, Don. We had about 10 candidates. I mean, crazies like the Ku Klux Klan guy, uh, just hordes of us, and it was a bitter a bitter primary. Uh, I came out of the primary victorious after after two runoffs. Had to, you, you, you had to have 50% at that time. And so Eddie Knox and I were in the runoff together, and, and uh, his folks didn't didn't uh, come with me. And he and he and Tom Gilmore and uh, Jimmy Green all uh, went with uh, Governor Martin and with uh, Jesse Helms and Ronald Reagan. So it was a bad year. But I want to say this on radio. I don't think I've ever said it before. What a decent individual Jim Martin was and is. I do not believe, Don, that Jim Martin ever said an ugly word about me. I know I didn't him. And just a perfect gentleman. And here's another little coincidence in in, in uh, history. Uh, I'm probably one of the few people that was beaten by a governor and then served with him when I was elected Secretary of State. Yeah, yeah. And so we got along fabulously. Well, interestingly enough, the two people we've talked about, uh, Jim Holzhauser and Jim Martin, fall in the category of being statesmen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, both of them. I said sometime I wish in my life I didn't have a, a candidate with the name Jim in it. Maybe I can change my name to Rufus Jim or Jim Rufus. <laughs> Something like that. Uh uh, by the way, later on the program, I want you to comment on the uh, Mueller situation that came out this week, but we'll do that in the last segment. Uh, so uh, so you served, of course, uh, uh, you ran, and then, of course, you uh, did not want to get out of public life. So two years later, you ran for, or four years later, I guess you ran for Secretary of State. Secretary of State in 1988, because I, I was succeeding Thad Ewer, who had been Secretary of State 52 years, and that was longer than I had lived. I was only 40 47 years old when I ran for Secretary of State, and he had been Attorney General for 50, he had been Secretary of State for 52 years, the longest in the nation. Now, that's another character that you ran into because he he uh, called himself the oldest rat in the Democratic Bar. Yeah, he certainly was. And, and, what a, and where what did, a, why did he come by that uh, term? I mean, why did he feel like that well, was a Well, they used great to have term. a thing called down east called the rat killing, and uh, he was a big a big official in the rat killing, which was just a bunch of boys got together and maybe had a few toasts here and there, and they called it the rat, Wiley Gaskins rat killing. And so we, we named him the oldest rat. Or they did. That was way before I was on the scene, the oldest rat in the Democratic barn. Well, he was sort of the unofficial chairman of the Democratic Party, I guess. Oh, absolutely. That that, that's, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. And by this time, every summer, he would have been wearing that uh, straw hat out on the Capitol, with his uh, seersucker suit on, greeting people. No one has ever served 52 years in one job, and no no one probably ever will again. No, he he, he held the nation's record. Uh, and, and a fascinating guy, fascinating guy. Oh, totally fascinating. He, I love listening to him. He was a great orator. He, he spoke in biblical terms, and as my high school English teacher would have said, it was iambic pentameter. Now, that – Shows you that I know a little bit about poetry, Don. <laughs> now, of course, his son later became uh, a great restaurant, uh, a great operator of restaurants. That year, Junior built the Angus Barn with Charles Winston. 
Absolutely. Well, Charlie Winston, of course, listens to this program every week, by the way. So hello to Charlie. Well, hello there to Charlie, because Charlie listens to the Weekend Gardener some, too. And I saw yeah. Charlie at the doctor's office the other day. Charlie, we've got to stop meeting at the doctor's office. And we have uh, Mrs. Packer, who's listening to the program. Yes, absolutely. Uh, her son, Billy. Uh, is it Billy? Uh, I'm yeah, not... that's right. So anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Let's get back to the book. And uh, so it, what inspired you to write this book? Because I'm sure it's fascinating. As I said, you've got such an interest in varied life and have met so many interesting characters. What inspired you to write well, the book? Uh, here about five, about ten years ago, a person in the U.S. Senate History Office called me and said, we would love to do an oral history with you about your Watergate years in the U.S. Senate with Senator Irvin. We've just finished one with Fred Thompson, and he suggested that we call you. And I said, well, Fred's a dear friend, and anything he says I should do, I'll, I'll certainly do it. And so I did an oral history we would go sometimes for five hours at a time, and I, I got it done in, in three or four sittings. And then I, I, I looked at it and read through it, and it was, had all kinds of beeps and blunders in it. And I thought, well, why don't we just turn this into a book since I'm already there and fill in a lot of the details. And writing a book is a very difficult thing. You know, people say, well, you ought to write a book. Well, I say to somebody, you ought to try it sometime. You, you better get you some help, and I've had some wonderful help from uh, some very fine people, Nancy Carter Moore and Catherine uh, Swain. That, not that they are writing the thing; it's just patching up my my country sayings and my country writing and my my speech patterns. And I wanted to chronicle some of the things that that were happening because I don't think that many people have the right have the knowledge now to let to let them know what happened back in those era that era. We'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers and our guest Rufus Edmondson right after these messages. As an 18-year-old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school, and I didn't do it. Ten years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma. When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter has just been more than the support that I could ask for. But I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. When we get old, will you take care of me if I can't get around anymore? Of course. We'll find a way. Are you going to take care of me if I can't see anymore? I'll read to you every day. And if one of us gets Alzheimer's disease, what then? Call 1-800-437-2423 for a free booklet on caring for your loved ones from Alzheimer's Disease Research. 1-800-437-2423. Now once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is Rufus Edmondson, who uh, 
has served as Attorney General of the State of North Carolina, uh, Secretary of State of North Carolina, ran for governor, and of course had a very interesting career of 10 years of service with Senator Sam Irwin in Washington, and especially with the Watergate. We've talked about the Watergate Commission a number of times, but those were certainly interesting times. I was riveted to the television screen during those hearings. It was a fascinating period of time, and of course, uh, there you were sitting right behind the senator, and um, we've talked about uh, so many of the things, but one of the most interesting things that occurred during that period of time was when you found out about the, the taping system. Uh, tell us how that happened. Yeah, but you know, Don, that, that has another North Carolina connection to it. Our friend Gene Boyce, a very prominent attorney and friend of yours, was up there working as uh, uh, one of the associate counsels for the Watergate Committee, and as we did with all witnesses, before they went on the stand publicly before the American people, they were in executive session because every lawyer will tell you that don't ask a question unless you know what the answer is going to be. So we, I wasn't in there. Gene and his crew had a man named Alexander Butterfield in, in executive session. And <clears throat> because of Gene's quick thinking and knowing that he had taken a cue from something that John Dean said about the Don, John Dean said one time, I thought I was being taped in the White House when I was with Nixon. And so uh, Gene Boyce's crew asked the question of Alexander Butterfield, is there a taping system in the White House? And he revealed it was, and that was one of the, one of the strongest points toward the downfall of Nixon. And, and remember, John Dean had been saying all along, that the president was guilty up to his eyeballs. And so when the taping system was revealed, uh, that would tell the whole story, but we had to get had to get, to get a hold of the tapes. And that's when I came into play, when Senator Urban at one point uh, called Richard Nixon and said, Mr. President, why don't you give up those tapes voluntarily? He said, no, I will not. They're, they're executive privilege. And Senator Urban said, that's executive poppycock <laughs> is the word he used. And so then I took it upon myself to uh, deliver the subpoena, which was the first time, Don, in history of the country that a committee of the Congress had subpoenaed a sitting president. And I'll never forget that day. It was the hottest uh, sweltering day in July the 23rd, 1973. I, I could hardly breathe in the back of a police car. And somebody said, well, you, I guess you were back there this time for something decent. I said, well, you don't need to go into that now. I was, I was there legally. And One of the things I've always wanted to ask you about that is now, uh, of course, the, the 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 contents of the tape tapes were extremely damaging, and uh, as you said, probably uh, uh, was the downfall of the pre- what was the downfall of the president? No question about that. So, uh, if when the tapes had been disclosed, the taping system, if Richard Nixon had said, "Wait a minute." Those were private conversations. The other people didn't know they were being taped. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them. You know what? And, and had destroyed them. In other words, made it past tense. Okay, what would have happened at that point? Don, time? I think he could have done that. And I, not many lawyers agree with me. He, he could have done it and not suffered any consequences, I think. I think it was Not hit. anywhere close to what ultimately no, happened. No. no. He, he, I, I think he could have destroyed the tapes, his personal property. His own his own recordings, and he was he was allowed to do that as long as one party to a conversation knows that it's being taped, it's legal. 
And I think to this day we would not have solved Watergate whatsoever because all you would have had would have been the word of John Dean that the president knew it, and I do not think you would have had anybody removed removed from office but for the discovery of the tapes, and I think Nixon could have discovered them, could have destroyed them. Uh, but you know what? His 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 self worth, and he thought so much of himself that he couldn't bear Don to destroy his own words because he thought he'd be losing such a great part of history, and so he outpreserved himself. He 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 by not destroying those tapes led to his, uh, I'm going to call it an excommunication from office because he knew that if he had been told by the Republican Party that if, if he didn't leave, he would be impeached and he would be then convicted in the Senate. And I remember one of them, Barry Goldwater, said, and I'd be one to vote for it. Yeah. So that's a great difference in what's happening today about all this impeachment talk and this and that. You, you you had a Senate that had some people in there that, that thought through the issues. Uh, so we, we have a lot of parallels, and we have not a lot of parallels. Well, it's so interesting that, uh, of course, Nixon knew exactly what was on the tapes, and he knew if it ever came out, he was toast. And that's the reason I just wondered why he just didn't He, ne- he never believed, on that the Supreme Court would vote to let, to let them uh, divulge the tapes. Yeah. And, of course, the Supreme Court voted 8-0. to zero. One person recused themselves. I keep hearing people on TV talk about it was 9-0. to zero. It was 8-0 to zero because one person uh, decided not to vote on it for a conflict. And he never believed that the court would order those tapes released. When were you in? When we finally got the tapes, were you in listening? To, did you actually listen to some I of them? I listened to some of them, and they are hilarious. He, he's funny. He, he has these uh, fits of, of dislike of people. And I used to say he can out-cuss my Aunt Jenny when she was alive. Now, she could do some cussing, especially when a fox would get in the hen house and get some, some hens. Aunt Jenny? But Aunt Jenny. Okay. She, she could do some cussing. Okay. And this guy could really do some cussing. And he didn't like particular people, particular uh, race, racial uh, people. Uh, he obviously didn't like the Jewish people. Uh, he was a very vain man, and, and as Senator Irvin said, Nixon was afraid of freedom. Uh, I've later learned what Senator Irvin meant by that. Nixon was afraid that people might get to know him. Yeah. Well, he was. Uh, he was certainly. Uh, you know, why? Why is it that we have this uh, propensity to elect people uh, that? Uh, uh, are so vain. <laughs> I mean, really, and of course, I guess, uh, you know, you have to have some uh, uh, ego to run for office in the first place. Uh, well, you've got to have some ego, but it can be overriding reason. And because, I mean, I think even the most ardent uh, Donald Trump fan will admit that he is certainly full of himself. Um, whether they like him or not. And not the only thing he's full of, but... I didn't say that now. You I didn't did. either much. <laughs> but uh, but we have, we uh, for some reason or other, the electorate falls in love with these people. Well, a, cert- a certain set of people, and I have plenty of friends, and that's why I'm not being partisan here. I have plenty of friends who are great supporters of Donald Trump, and they say, well, that's just the way he is. Well, 
sometimes the way you are gets gets in the way of being a good diplomat or being a good president. And so that's for other people to judge and not me. What uh, What's the most overlooked change in current day politics compared to, say, back in the 1970s and 80s when you were so very active? The personal viciousness, Don. In fact, today with my personality, I don't think that I could I'd be a good candidate. As much as I like people, as much as I'm good at campaigning. You've got to be have thick skins these days. I, d- I don't think I could do it uh, because the viciousness and the personal attacks on you and your family are the big differences now. That we were getting that way in 84. We got a little bit that way when uh, Skipper Bowles and, and, uh, was running against Holsizer. He Skipper ran some pretty tough ads. But the advent of television and negative ads and negative ads has made all the difference in the world because now the the consultants want you to attack, 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 and that seems to have been the ruination. And and another thing too, the third the party har- money, the har- horrible case of you, uh, of what was common cause versus uh, uh, I'm I'm not, I'm not quoting the one, but. Third-party money flooding the system has virtually ruined decency in American politics. Yeah, because everybody can claim they didn't didn't approve it and so forth. No. When in fact, you know, there has to be some cooperation <laughs> in uh, most of those cases. This is uh, one of the things as a broadcaster when uh, uh, we uh, have to run ads that we disagree with, but uh, right. it's mandated and. Uh, uh, you know, what most people don't know is how many times we reject that copy and send it back for revision. Oh, I did not uh, know that. Oh, that, yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm telling you, we uh, some of the ads, uh, I, I guess probably 50% of the contents changed before it finally hits the air. Do you get it well, even are, within is the Is that bounds? a standard thing, or is that just the Curtis Media? No, that's that's pretty standard. That's pretty standard. By the way, the name of that case was uh, Citizens United. Yeah. And that's, that's the one that's just totally, totally – turned American politics into into a wasteband. Well, it, it, it's uh, certainly made life uh, tough on broadcasters because we very often are forced to run ads that we know are full of half-truths, uh, and, uh, and yet uh, apparently they work. Apparently they work. Rufus Edmondson is our guest. He is uh, uh, the author of a new book, That's Rufus, a memoir of Tar, Tar Heel politics, Watergate, and public life, and we'll talk about how you can get your copy of this book. Uh, well, let's talk about it right now. How can you get your copy of this book? Well, you, the Museum of History, uh, well, by the time that this uh, program airs, will have had a, a grand opening on the 30th, and they will have a supply of books at the Museum of History. You can get the, the thing through Amazon.com. You can get it from McFarland Publishing Company. And if you get in desperate straits, you can call me, and I can get I can find you one somewhere. Okay, Rufus Edmondson, our guest, and we'll be back with one final segment of Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there. What about jobs? No. Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months, and even more stuff, but still no jobs. Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. 
even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. The entire world watched. They watched each step down the rungs of that small ladder, one after another, and waited with great anticipation for that last step. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. At that moment, humanity saw the impossible become the possible. And today, the sky is not the limit. Achievement. Pass it on. A message from the Foundation for a Better Life. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Rufus Edmondson is our guest. He's been on our program a number of times. So he and I have shared experiences as students at Chapel Hill, and of course, he's the pride and joy of Boone, North Carolina, having served as Attorney General of North Carolina, Secretary of State, candidate for governor, and many, many other interesting things that he's done through the years. Rufus, let's, uh, let's talk about the, the big news of this week. Because uh, this is this is something that, uh, because of your background with Watergate, you are probably uh, very interested in, and that it was the press conference this week that Mueller had, and we are all discussing what it means and and what happened. I mean, yeah, it was very unusual. Don, I, I thought we'd never hear from Mueller again, except maybe through congressional testimony. I think what he did was he's saying, "Okay, look, I've made my report. I don't know what more I can say about it." and not violate some oath or some secrecy. <clears throat> but I think what he was really doing is saying, look, Congress, now it's up to you. Uh, he, he certainly did not exonerate the president like the president says he did. Uh, he just said, I've made my report, and I did not exonerate the president. So, Congress, now it's up to you to do whatever you think to do, and they're going to have to – to buckle down and decide whether or not they're going to institute impeachment proceedings. I personally wouldn't do it. I, uh, the courts are going to have to weigh in here on on, on all this matter cause, like they did in Watergate. And I, I don't know why people don't go back, especially in the administration, and read something about Watergate because no good came of Watergate. And in the end, the courts came down in favor of being separation of powers and the Congress has the right to uh, – ask for information and investigate. I, 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 people do not seem to learn from history. Uh, and I, I would suggest that the administration start studying Watergate because that's, that is the way that they can find a way out of this thing uh, that is very burdensome right now because if, if, if it is as the administration says it is, Congress, should, Congress has no more role than there to dish out a little bit of money here and there. And pass a couple laws, and that's about all the power they have, if it's as the administration says it is. Uh, the Budget Committee, I guess you might say. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That's about it. Well, I thought it was sort of interesting because he uh, uh, he made it clear, uh, I thought exactly, that he said, okay, the report stands on its own, and I, I, I'm just not going to answer any questions. Because well, it's, it's an old term, and, and uh, <clears throat> the law it calls race ipso loquitur, Latin, it means the thing stands for itself. That's exactly what he said. 
Let me ask you another question, uh, Rufus. It's uh, sort of on, been on my mind recently with all the people who are uh, changing registrations from either Republican to unaffiliated or from Democrat to unaffiliated. Um, it bothers me that this seemingly takes an awful lot of qualified people out of the pool to be candidates because if you're a registered unaffiliate, I guess you can run as a Democrat or Republican, but the party itself will probably take no, it out on you. The party will not endorse you. That's correct. No. And and what's happening is that, it, frankly, a, a very strong two-party system has always been the best for democracy, in my opinion. Now, a lot of people, though, in some counties right now, the unaffiliates outnumber the Republicans and the Democrats in Watauga County is about at that right now. Well, I think there's 30 counties now that plurality is uh, yeah. registered and affiliated, something like that. And a lot of people do it for political purposes. A lot of people just get disgusted and say, well, I'm not going to register with either one of them because I'm tired of all the fighting and fussing. I can sort of understand it, but it's not exactly good for democracy because when you've got one party say that they stand for this and another party stands for that, then you have a choice. And right now with an unaffiliated candidate, uh, they're not going to get anywhere uh, very quickly anyway unless unless uh, they have something extremely unique about them. Of course, one of, the, you know, one of the things that drew me to become a registered unaffiliate is the fact that you can choose which primary you will vote in. But I think it essentially takes all of those people out of the pool as a candidate, and that's the, that's the damaging part. <clears throat> it, it is. Because we don't have enough people who are in a position to serve to begin with uh, especially in the General Assembly, which is it's a full-time job, but you it's a part-time salary. And so uh, there are only a handful of people that can afford that luxury of running and serving. You know, Don, they're going to have to decide what, whether they really do want a part-time uh, legislature or a full-time because right now, as you say, only the, the wealthy and the retired with some good funds yeah. can do it. Yeah. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, if you live in the middle part of the state, it's not that difficult to serve. But if you live in the extreme west or the extreme east, uh, it's just burdensome to You can to get to Atlanta off. quicker yeah. from, from Murphy than you, you can from yeah. <laughs> up in Murphy. Whatever happened to Rock City? All those billboards that said you see seven states from Rock City. Is Rock City still there? I, I assume it is. I love those things on the barn barn sides yeah that was uh i've never been to have you ever been to rock city never have in my life i used to wonder was there a real rock city but uh, supposedly you can see seven states from rock city yeah, i see jason looking very perplexed over there i guess rock city would be way back in the corner of uh, around cherokee or it must Mur be murphy or somewhere up there i never saw it well i i saw the barns but i haven't seen a sign in forever so that's that's something we need to pass a law that reestablishes Rock City. And Burma Shave. Yeah. Uh, Burma Shave will get signs, too. Uh, Jason also doesn't know anything about that. <laughs> so, Rufus, as you look at the state of North Carolina right now and the many challenges we have, what do you think are the two or three things that stand out as things that concern you as you look ahead uh, for uh, the next uh, five to ten years, what what things concern you about this growing state? We are uh, growing like leaps and bounds, and, and uh, we've got all sorts of challenges. What do you look at and say, okay, these are the three or four things that really bother me? Well, the one that bothers me is, is the not planning for transportation the way we should. You cannot pave over the entire state of North Carolina when its number one industry is, is uh, tourism. Uh, 
there's got to be a better way to move people around. And I'm not talking about the usual. Uh, I know you're going to have not have the New York subway stuff here and this and that. There's got to be a better way, better way to move people around. I'm concerned about their prisons. I believe that we are putting too many people in jail right now because we have harsh sentencing guidelines, and that seems strange coming from a guy like me, John, Don, that put more people in jail than probably anybody else. Uh, we need to get away with these mandatory sentences and, and try to rehabilitate people on drug stuff rather than throwing everybody in jail. And the other one is we've got to, got to, got to preserve our natural resources. You cannot allow <clears throat> polluters to destroy this state because it is so beautiful and so wonderful and the easing up of environmental rules, to me, is a big mistake. Well, uh, we certainly – and, of course, growth brings its own problems. And, of course, we've got this inequality or uh, imbalance between the haves and the have-not counties that is also a major concern. No, there's no question about it. When you look at rural North Carolina, they're left out in every respect. Uh, and I think broadband Internet is one of the big problems there, although I'm not a broadband guy. Uh, I'm not very technically savvy, but I, I believe it's time to do something about broadband for everybody. Well, uh, we hear that a lot on this program. Rufus Edmondson and his new book, That's Rufus, A Memoir of Tar Heel Politics, Watergate, and Public Life. I'm assuming this copy is mine. Uh, you are correct on and, that. And I want you to autograph it before you leave, and then I'm looking forward to reading it because I think I've gone through a lot of this uh, whole time period, and it's going to be fascinating for me. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he'll have another interesting guest for us. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that, or if you'd like to share it with a friend. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. And we'll be back again next week at the same time, same station, with another edition of Carolina Newsmakers. Till next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.